You say you'll never 
everyone. Welcome to Redemption Church. Good to see you guys this morning. We're going to begin with prayer. If you would, wherever you are, just um, bow your heads and close your eyes. And I invite you to just take a deep breath of air into your lungs. Just breathe in deep and then breathe out slowly. And just continue to do this as we try to signal to our bodies that we're entering into sacred time, sacred space, a place of Sabbath rest where we just get to delight in the presence of God and our family of believers. So let's just stand together in silence um, for a few moments as we begin this morning. Heavenly Father, we're um, grateful to be here, grateful just to be able to stand in silence and breathe in and out and know that you're here with us, that you are um, loving us and calling us forward into our lives. And we just confess our deep need for you. We need help to figure out um, where we're going in the world, what our lives mean and what gives them purpose, and we come today to worship, to try to catch a glimpse of the world as you imagine it. Help us to see the way you want things to be and to get a sense of how our lives can be drawn up into that. And um, so for that, we just confess our, our deep need for you, our God. We submit ourselves to you in this time. And we ask you to come to us and speak to us. For those who are hurting and just struggling, God, we pray that you would pull up close and just whisper words of hope into our ears. For those who are, um, you know, on top of the world, God, I pray that you would be um, seen as the source of all the goodness of life for everything in between. Um, we're here. We're here to turn our eyes toward you. So come to us in this time. Stay with us, we ask. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please join me in the call to worship. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. 
that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. May the people praise you, O God. May all the people praise you. May the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you rule the people justly and guide the nations of the earth. May the people praise you, O God. May all the people praise you. Then the land will yield its harvest, and God, our God, will bless us. God will bless us, and all the ends of the earth will fear him.
você. The reading today is from the book of Leviticus. And the Lord spoke to Aaron, drink no wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons, when you enter the tent of meeting, that you may not die, it is a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them through Moses. You shall keep all of my statutes and all my ordinances and observe them so that the land to which I bring you to settle in may not vomit you out. You shall not follow the practices of the nation that I am driving out before you. Because they did all these things, I abhorred them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land and I will give it to you to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God. I have separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore make a distinction between the clean animal and the unclean, and between the unclean bird and the clean. You shall not bring abomination on yourselves by animal or by bird, or by anything with which the ground teems, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and I have separated you from the other peoples to be mine. The word of the Lord. Please stand and continue worshiping with us.
merciful God, we humbly repent. Help us to walk in your ways. Most merciful God, most merciful God. Most merciful God, we humbly repent. Help us to walk in your ways. Most merciful God, most merciful Good morning. As we come to our time of the prayers of the people, I invite you to spend a few moments with me in uh, quiet confession together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, in word, in deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. As we come together this morning, Lord, I just pray that you would be with each of us, find us where we are this morning, whether we're on top of the world or, or dealing with challenges this week, that you would remind us that we all come here equally this morning to this place to gather together to find our lives in you, to find our hope in you, and to know that we're dependent on you, God, for the potential of our lives. For the church meeting around the world this morning, we pray that you would be lifted up and glorified in all the different forms that it takes, that your voice would be heard, that your body would be Christ to those that are around them, that each of us would feel the compulsion to, to love and to be loved and to share. <clears throat> Lord, for our nation, we pray that you would continue to, to heal wounds and heal scars and uh, help us deal with challenges effectively for our local community as we confront homelessness, we confront heat, we confront food secure insecurity. I just pray that you would help us as we contribute to those efforts to help people see their lives in you, to know the peace that comes from you. Lord, hear our prayers. Let our cries come to you this morning. Lord, for kids and parents and all of us who are transitioning back to a, a different pace of life and a different time with, with transitions back to school, we just take a moment and pray for those people. Lord, for teachers jumping back in after a summer, we, we pray that they would be refreshed, that they would come back with a new hope of being able to impact young lives. We take a moment to pray for them as well. Lord, also for Sarah Klein, who had a couple of knee replacements last week, we just pray that you would be with her to help her continue to heal, 
continue to get back on her feet. We thank you for her life and her participation and leadership here. We just ask that you would be with her to heal quickly. For Melissa Hogue, who is uh, recovering from a, a, a hip problem, Lord, we pray that you would be with Melissa this morning as well. Lord, and in my own life and in Mandy's life, we pray for her dad as he goes through chemotherapy to continue to fight against cancer. We thank you for um, the results so far, and we just ask that you would be with him and give him strength, help him to rest, help him to have peace. Lord, we bring all these things to you this morning. We know that our lives come from you. The only way for us to achieve a peace that, that really surpasses our understanding is to lean on you. So as we look at the rest of this day, the rest of this morning together, the rest of this time gathering together as your body, we just pray that you would be lifted up and that you would be glorified in all the things that happen here in our thoughts, our minds, the way we treat one another, that we would leave here being a reflection of your spirit to the world around us. We love you and thank you for your grace, for a chance to be part of your body. And we ask in, in Jesus' name that you would take us forward today to be light and life to those around us. In your name we pray, amen. As we always do, it's a, it's a good time to, uh, to give. We don't pass baskets anymore with uh, some of the changes in the last couple of years, but for most of you probably know you can give online. You can go to our website, redemptionchurchkc.com. There's a link on there in the top, upper right-hand corner where you can set up a profile to set up a, a one-time gift or a recurring gift. I encourage you to do that um, and appreciate everybody's uh, being with us this morning. Please stand as we continue to worship.
it is now time to bless our children. If you are new with us this morning, please feel free to find the person in the back with the U18 clipboard. They would love to show you where your child's classroom is. Otherwise, please feel free to assist your child in the transition to their classrooms by following them to the atrium and looking for our preschool, elementary, and Club 56 leaders. A note on that is that Club 56 will be going to the youth room today. If you're with your child, put your arms around them and let's bless them. Lord, we ask you to bless our children. We know that before they belong to us, they belong to you, and that we are helping them to steward their lives for your kingdom. As we send them out to be together and with their teachers, we ask that you would go with them, that as they read the scriptures, they wouldn't just see far off names and places, but that they would catch a glimpse of you and your great love for all of us. More than anything, we pray that they would never know a single day that they don't feel a part of the people of God. So we bless them, and we ask you to bless them in Christ's name. And we pray, as we always do, that you would bind our hearts together as a church. Teach us to love each other and the world around us for your sake. Amen. Let's take a couple of minutes to say hello and to greet those around you.
Welcome, welcome everyone. It's good to see you here. Good to hear you guys all talking and enjoying each other. We are, as you know, in the book of Leviticus this summer. It's very exciting. Leviticus is, um, which is sometimes called Vaikra in the Hebrew Bible. It is also often called um, Torah Kohanim. Torah Kohanim. Say that with me. Torah Kohanim. This means instruction, Torah, to the priests. Because among other things, the book of Leviticus is a priestly instruction manual, which makes it obviously sometimes difficult to to read. I don't know how many of you sit around and read instruction manuals for pleasure, but it's got to be a small number, Um, especially one so remote to our modern um, worldview. And so to kind of keep from getting lost in the weeds or misunderstanding it, we have to continually try to keep the larger story in, in view along the way. And today we're kind of jumping into a new section of Leviticus, chapters 11 through 16, which includes all this stuff that you, all the stuff that gets bad press in Leviticus. So it's like the dietary laws, the laws about skin diseases and rashes, about bodily discharges. I mean, it's good stuff. It's it's sweet. But um, today we're kind of going to do just an introductory pass um, and sort of tell the story that, that has elicited this sort of literature in the life of Israel. And then the next couple of weeks, we'll go through and kind of unpack the details. And part of this story involves the reality that in the ancient world, there was really no such thing as an atheist. There were just no atheists. In the world of Leviticus, everyone believed in the gods. And, and there was a sense in which every culture was a direct reflection of their own gods, kingdoms, empires, um, cultures were seen as the embodiment, in a sense, of their gods. And the dominant culture in this part of the story for the children of Israel was Egypt. And the scriptures, um, in the scriptures, Egypt represents a certain way of ordering the world, a way that is known as empire. Of course, the symbol of this is the the pyramid, which symbolizes not just the greatness of of Egypt, but the very structure of Egyptian culture. It was organized as a pyramid. Last summer, we learned about this when we studied Exodus, if you remember, that the empires, all of them do at least three things. They do many things, but they do at least these three. They commodify everything, give everything a value that's transferable, and then they transfer that wealth up the, the the pyramid, to fewer and fewer people. All the power and privilege is headed toward the top. And then they enforce that structure through violence and religion. This is, this is just what they do. And so the pyramid isn't just like a monument to Pharaoh. It's a symbol of Egyptian life, a symbol of empire that moves all the value toward the top. And, and this structure in a world in which there are no atheists was thought to just embody the will of the gods. Now, one of the defining characteristics of empire is that all empires are about consumption. I mean, they just swallow up everything they can get their hands on, every piece of land or wealth, every resource, even the lives of its own citizens. Empires just consume it all and, and then push, it, push the value of it toward the top of the pyramid. And they don't even stop with their own people. All empires feed on other cultures. That's why they're always at war. They have to 
consume other cultures and metabolize them into their own structure or else they decline and, and die. And so there's this, this sense in which, if you look at the structure there, the, the entire weight of the whole Egyptian empire rests really on the shoulders of those at the bottom of the pyramid. The word for this would be exploitation. Empires thrive on exploitation. And every layer up, you know, is exploited by the ones above them. In every empire in history, I mean every empire, has risen to power on the backs of a bottom layer of, of free or cheap labor, usually in the form of slavery or, or bondage. And they, they keep that bottom layer filled up by feeding on other cultures. I mean, this is like the plot of almost every sci-fi movie that I love, right? This is, this is what they do. Um, especially if they're like alien movies, which a surprising number of these um, are starring Tom Cruise. Have you noticed this? <laughs> this happens an awful lot. I mean, these are just three of them. They, all of them have an identical plot, essentially. Um, some alien empire comes to plunder Earth's resources. They, they don't care if they destroy the Earth in the process, but thank God Tom Cruise is going to save us from this, right? And, and, and these movies are about aliens, but they're really about empires. It's sci-fi, right? And how empires function and what it looks like from the bottom as they're doing their thing. By the way, we're still trying to reckon with this as we live within the American empire and the fact that we prospered as a nation by forcing Native Americans off their lands and killing like 19 million of them in the process. Then we built the world's greatest economy for the first, you know, quite a few centuries on the backs of African slaves. I mean, to Native Americans and descendants of slaves, we're the alien invaders who swallowed up their world and exploited their bodies and land and future and turned it into wealth for those at the top of the pyramid and destroyed their culture in the process. And sadly, Christians were all too happy to say this is the will of the gods, the will of God. And many still take, this, still take this posture to this day, which is, is beyond tragic. It's like seriously it's evil. It's scary. It's the very antithesis of, in fact, the story that we're telling today. But this is the role the gods play in an empire. They basically do two things. First, the gods are always assumed to be on the side of the conquerors, right? Conquerors conquer in the name of their gods because their gods are stronger. And then the gods legitimate the system of exploitation and bondage and cheap labor, right? This is justified by the gods because it demonstrates the gods' greatness. And this was the dominant narrative in the world of Leviticus. And it's, it persists to this day. But for the Hebrew people, back when they were living in Egypt, they were still kind of in the early stages of their own history, right? They had no organized religion at this point, no scripture, no songs or prayers, no rituals, no practices or beliefs. And so living as they were under the Egyptian empire, their lives just naturally began to bear the image of Egypt. They had no other story to turn to by which to define themselves. So they're just defined by this pyramid, and they kind of were co-opted into that and, and exploited, and they took up residence really at the bottom of the pyramid, and they just accepted this as their reality. 
And, and I've really come to believe that I think this is a real danger for all of us living as we are um, within the American empire that is increasingly organized in the shape of a pyramid. I mean, native people are all but disappearing. Slavery is illegal. Who do you think is serving as cheap labor for the empire, right? Because it's somebody upon whose shoulders is the weight of the American empire resting. It's an interesting theological question even. You know, the working class in our society works for money that we're told will buy us, you know, a, a good life. And the more we work, the more money we make. And the more money we make, the more we can consume and move up the pyramid toward a better life. But the more we consume and the higher we climb, the less fulfilling it seems to be. And it's into that kind of environment that um, we move and live. And people struggle to find meaning in work and in life. Our culture has seen just increasing levels of depression, anxiety, stuff like that skyrocketing. Rocketing. I mean, it's not disconnected from this reality that we live within empire and that the goal of that system is not human flourishing. It is exploitation and consumption. My favorite iteration of this, I'm a, I'm a child of the 90s, so it won't surprise you, my favorite iteration is from the movie Office Space. Anybody else love Office Space? It's about this guy, Peter Gibbons. I can quote an inordinate amount of office space. It's bad. Um, he has this, this guy has a good job, decent money, good friends, but he's realizing life in the middle of the pyramid here is not fulfilling, and he gets all depressed. It's causing problems in his relationships. His girlfriend makes him go to this um, hypnotherapist, this group therapy thing with a hypnotist, and um, when it's his turn to share, um, he doesn't pull his punches. He, Peter says, so I was sitting in my cubicle today, and I realized ever since I started working, every single day of my life has been worse than the day before it. <laughs> hopeful. Hopeful, right? And so he goes on. He says, so, so that means that every single day that you see me, that's on the worst day of my life. <laughs> and, the, and the therapist, he's looking very concerned. He says, what about today? He's trying to prompt him to say something hopeful. He's like, what about today? Is today the worst day of your life? And Peter doesn't even blink. He goes, oh yeah, definitely it is. <laughs> and, and then the, the, the therapist kind of forgets where he is and he, he just looks at him and goes, man, that's really messed up. <laughs> <laughs> I play this in my head so many times a week. The genius of office space, if you can call it a genius, is to, to show just how everyone involved in the pyramid is conditioned to believe the way things are is the way they have to be. It's the will of the gods, right? But life in the pyramid is so demanding that it's, it's very rare that somebody will stop and contemplate the reality that the way we've organized the world is making most of us miserable. And I think we share this reality in common with the world of Leviticus. It was into that kind of situation, actually much worse because of the violence and slavery, but into a similar situation that this very radical thing happened. The children of Israel, as life got worse, they began to cry out under the lash 
uh, of Pharaoh. It doesn't even say they cried out to God. They just cried out in general, in pain, to the void. But what the story claims is that the God of um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at that point was listening. It claims that this God's ear is attuned to oppressed people and their cries. This God has special concern for those who suffer, especially those at the bottom of, of the pyramid, which makes this God radically different from all the other gods of the other cultures. Remember, they, they do two things. They're on the side of the conquerors, and they legitimate this system of oppression and exploitation. This God is the opposite. This God hears the cry and is on the side of those at the bottom of the pyramid or on the margins, and then undermines oppressive structures and liberates those that they exploit. And so this God is radically different from the other gods. This God, you could say, is set apart. This God is set apart from the gods of the world. And I use that language on, on purpose because you, hopefully you, you remember set apart is the definition of the Hebrew word kadosh, which we translate as holy. Holy means set apart. So this God is holy as in set apart in this way. This is, this is huge theologically, you guys, and it's, it's a found, foundational element of Jewish identity and faith that is all but lost on most American Christians. Um, so if we miss this, we'll end up misconstruing so much of what's happening in scriptures, even what Christ is doing. Yahweh is set apart from the other gods based on this key difference that Yahweh is on the side of the oppressed and undermines oppressive, exploitative structures. And so part of what that means is that part of the very foundation of God's holiness, God's set-apartness, involves liberation. This is not the God of the pyramids or empires. This is the God of the ragamuffins and the least and the lost and the lowly. The very holiness of God is founded in this act of liberation in Exodus and into Leviticus. This is what sets God apart as Kadosh, holy. And God's holiness then is not some like abstract idea. Um, it's not about even religious piety. God's holiness is about God's particular action in the world on behalf of those who are made miserable by empire exploited and oppressed. God's holiness refers to the set apart from other gods-ness of Yahweh that's defined by this, this move. This is how God moves in the world and how the world, God wants the world to be organized. It, it's about liberation. But the pyramid that defined Israel or that defined Egypt, also defined the Israelite people. They were exploited and enslaved, and all the value was sucked from their lives and sent up the pyramid. And so they cry out, and God hears their cry. Because this God desires a different way of living for them, a, a way called shalom, peace, which just means you know, flourishing and wholeness for everything as itself. And so in the story, what happens is God moves against Egypt to liberate those who suffer. This is how God is revealed to be holy. I mean, this, this is a stunning moment in the story. 
God's holiness is not just like an attribute uh, on a list of other attributes like saying God is, you know, special or number one. It's, it's a concrete movement toward freedom and liberation. Over and over, God will remind them, like, I am holy, set apart from other gods for this reason. Why? Because I brought you up out of Egypt and liberated you from the hand of Pharaoh. God will continually remind them of this. My holiness is based in this. I saved you from being consumed and exploited. So when God says, be holy as I am holy, this is not primarily about like religious piety. It's not even about like moral, ethical, religious transgressions. God's command, be holy as I am holy, is about aligning ourselves with those who suffer and the God who liberates them and, and then working to change that situation, like hearing their cry, working for their liberation, reforming the very structures of society so that everyone can be free, not free as in just like free to do whatever they want to do, but free to actually flourish as a human being, as, as that was intended to be. And that this should come to everyone, not just those at the top. Everyone should experience that kind of flourishing. But really, we're talking about holiness, set-apartness, to be human as human was intended. So when God comes into the story and sets the children of Israel free, he draws them out of Egypt and takes them strangely into the wilderness. And in the midst of this, we discover in the story, God's just trying to reorder the world. You know, by liberating these captives and then through them, extending this new way of ordering, this shalom, this peace to all the nations so everyone can flourish in God's good world. Of course, the problem is they get out in the desert and they're like, you know, still captive to Egypt. They start complaining immediately. They want to go back to Egypt. They cannot imagine a future um, for themselves that doesn't involve empire. They, they blow it big time with the golden calf, and, and it just reveals how deeply their lives, their imaginations about the world and their place in it, it's just still in bondage to Egypt. And so it's, it's this crisis in the wilderness, and they, they learn, we've, t- we've talked about it this way, simply leaving Egypt doesn't make you free, right? There's more involved. Freedom involves being renewed in the image of God and organizing your common life, not just as an individual, but as a society, in a way that everyone can flourish. And so, in a sense, you could say um, they had gotten out of Egypt. Now the problem was getting Egypt out of them, their instincts and imagination. And so the question of Leviticus, one of the big questions is, how, how, do, you, how do you do this? Where do you start? to reorder the whole world in a way that reflects the holiness of God. And the answer that Leviticus gives is you start with the little things, small things. You know, in a world in which almost nothing seemed to be holy except Yahweh and almost everything had been co-opted by empire, God's desire still seems to be that all of life should become holy, that all the world should reflect the intention of its Creator, that all people could be liberated from bondage and flourish as themselves. How, how can this happen? Well, Leviticus says you start with something small. 
or you might could say it this way, before everything can be holy, something has to be holy. Like whatever you can say about the whole thing, it has to first be said of something particular, right? And so through that, people can learn to recognize what this even means, holiness, set-apartness, and how it impacts their, their life. Before everything can be holy, something has to become holy. And so that's where God starts, with something, small things, to try to teach them to um, distinguish between the ways of empire and the ways of the kingdom. And so God begins to teach them to make distinctions between common things and things that are set apart for liberation. And in this new section we're going to, chapter um, 11 through 16, Leviticus really gets down to the, I mean, nitty-gritty, small, little, nitpicky details of, of things. And this is for training in being set apart for a specific purpose. It's, it's like if somebody joins the military. Um, if you sign up for military service, one of the first things they teach you when you go to be trained is how to make your bed, right? And of course, there are many ways to make a bed. Uh, I prefer, you know, just the quick, like, throw it and then walk away and don't look back. That's my method of making the bed. Um, but in the military, there's only one way to make a bed. Why? Because they're being set apart for a specific purpose, part of which involves learning to work as one cohesive unit. So they wear the same clothes. They get their hair cut the same way. They make their beds in the ex exact same way, and they just drill it until they can all do it perfectly. And then this extends out from there to how they fold their clothes, how they press their shirts, how to polish their shoes, and how to store things in your footlocker, and what things are allowed inside the barracks, and what things are to stay outside, what, what they must wear and when, like at this ceremony, you wear this, and this training, you wear that. When you're off duty, you can wear this, but no other time. It's all this, this training in how to be set apart for a specific purpose. This is like what's going on. How do you train somebody in a, like a whole new way of being in the world? Will you create some strong, but almost arbitrary categories of this and not that, of these, not those, of stop doing that, start doing this, and then slowly these little things begin to take on larger symbolic meaning and they back up on them and start to form their character in ways that lead to liberation. This is like what God is doing in Leviticus, leading them to sort of find the answer to the question, how do you, how do you change communities and creation and societies and down to individuals? How do you lead them in new ways that trend toward peace, not bondage and exploitation? That, that let them be everything they've been created to be. And God's answer seems to be that you start with the small little mundane details of life. Um, if you remember last week, when at the very end, we ended last week with um, two of Aaron, the high priest, two of his sons being killed because they offered this unauthorized um, fire. And it seems quite nitpicky. I mean, they were put to death for doing one of the details wrong. But part of what that's teaching is the details are super important at this point in the story. Later on, it's going to change. Right now, this is what they're doing. They're building identity in this season. So it says what we read um, earlier. 
God tells Aaron, drink no wine or other intoxicant. You or your sons when you enter the tent of meeting that you may not die. Part of why this is there is that it was thought that part of what those two sons did wrong is they were drunk when they went in, which was also how all the pagan priests, they, they were all high or drunk when they did their, just part of the cultic practices. And so God for, forbids this and says, you're going to stop doing that kind of thing. And it says, this, this law is for all time throughout the ages, for you must distinguish between the sacred and the profane and between the unclean and the clean, and you must teach the Israelites all the laws which the Lord has imparted them through Moses. And this word distinguish is a really important word. In Hebrew, it's um, badal. Try to say that when you say badal. Badal. So this is distinguish. Badal means to divide or separate. Literally, it's drive a wedge between two things. God's asking them to learn to do this, to badal, distinguish between things that end up leading to bondage and things that lead to liberation. This is obviously you know, it's the underlying purpose of, of the story at this point, this holiness idea and the laws of Leviticus. It's all about teaching them badal, to distinguish between things that lead to flourishing and things that lead to bondage. And so God will start to mess with little kind of ordinary things. And the first thing declared holy in the entire Bible isn't a thing, it's a time. It's Sabbath day. God just gives them this simple practice of reordering time, which is meant to liberate them. You know, only slaves work seven days a week. So they got to stop acting like slaves. So one day a week, they do no work. They let things rest. They just spend the day delighting in the goodness of being alive. This is what free people do, right? Enjoy creation. Enjoy your relationships. You know, spend time with your family and your friends. Delight in great food and good wine and rest and play and singing and dancing because everything can be holy. Something has to be holy. Let's just start with this, this one day a week. And this will start to back up on you. It'll teach you the difference between being free and, and being a slave. The next thing that was ordered was holy space. This is Leviticus 1 through 8. Um, it was creating this tent of meeting, the tabernacle, the Mishkan, um, at the center of the camp, center of their national life, their, their society, that will be set apart as holy, unlike any of the other spaces. And this is in the middle of everything. It's this reordered space that symbolically kind of represents God's um, desire for the reordering of the whole world. That's the Mishkan. And then God said, if you'll reorder that, then I'll, I'll show up in this space in a special way. And it's not that God isn't like present in all the world. God totally is present everywhere. But in this place, they're going to come together and practice an awareness of God's presence with this restructured, symbolically, society or world. Um, there's this writer, Ronald Rollheiser, that I love. He puts it this way. He said, God is already present always present everywhere. God is no more present in church than in a drinking bar, but we are generally more present to God in a church than we are in a drinking bar. Can I get an amen? Pro the problem of presence is not with God, but with us. That's deeply underneath the symbolism here. The building of the Mishkan was about carving out space to be set apart as kadosh, as holy, for the purpose of enhancing their awareness of God's presence with them. 
and in part to stop looking over their shoulder for Pharaoh to fix things. This is still about um, changing their imagination, liberating them from from bondage. So there's reordering of time with Sabbath, reordering of space with the with the Mishkan, and then there's a setting apart of certain holy actions. They're given um, new rituals at the tent, the the korban, the bringing near things, the offerings, where, where they brought just normal things: cows, goats, sheep, birds, grain, oil, salt, the normal elements of of their diet, of their crops, of their, their food. They would take a portion of it and s- distinguish, badal it. Part of it is holy to God. And, and it kind of seemed like the whole point of this was to bring people closer to God, but they started to realize it, it seems like maybe the, the point is to bring God closer just to the nor- normal, ordinary things, to train us to see these as conduits to the divine instead of just grist for the mill of Pharaoh's empire. So again, this is linked to liberation. So there's holy time, holy space, holy actions. And then came holy people. We talked about this last week, the priests. Um, Before everyone could be set apart, someone had to be set apart. That was the priest. They were the first. And they're kind of like, you know, like, did did you have ever a coach who's just obsessed with the fundamentals? And you're like, we well, you want to play, and you're just dribbling, 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 doing all these drills. That, that's what the priests are like. They're like the annoying guys who are like, well, technically, you know, <laughs> that's the priests. They're, they, they're just obsessed with the fundamentals. And you could say obsessed with um, badal, with, with distinguishing holy and unholy. They're experts. They just hovered over the tabernacle and taught the people how to badal so they could learn what it means to do this work of being set apart. So, so they order sacred time and Sabbath. Then this stuff's happening around this sacred space, and now we're in the turn, in chapters 11 through 16, about ordering kind of ordinary, everyday things. What they eat, what they touch, what they wear, how they relate to the community, the land, the animals, their own bodies, what goes into their bodies, what comes out of their bodies. And before all of this can be holy, God's going to say, badal, and make, distinguish, make some of this holy. That's the law. That's the purpose of the law. And we'll get more into the, yeah, Club 56, we'll get, um, <laughs> we'll get more into kind of the details of this over the next couple of weeks. That's just sort of an overview of why God is taking them in this direction, um, and the larger purpose of the law. Um, But what I want us to do in closing today is to see if we can't try to let this story um, help us think about the world in which we live, Um, both on like a social, societal level and on the personal level in our own lives. And so let's start with society. I mean, we, we try to tell the truth about this best we can at Redemption, that like we're, we're living in a time of deep disorientation as a society. And we are negotiating a bunch of crises at the same time. And they can feel like, you know, this overwhelming kind of weight, this bondage laid over the top of our, our lives. It's stuff like a global pandemic that seems to just keep 
you know, hanging on and mutating. Economic injustice and growing wealth inequality. Racial injustice, violence and mistreatment of minorities. A threatened democracy and just this kind of dysfunctional political situation. And then the mother of all crises, climate change, which just could unravel everything. I mean, we're dealing with a lot of stuff here. And there's a lot of despair in response to these things. I mean, most of the people who, like, take time to actually carefully consider the state of the world in, in light of these things find it difficult to imagine a way out of these problems. And so it, it begins to feel a bit like bondage. And so what might this story of the children of Israel at this Leviticus moment in their history, what, what might it, that teach us to do if, if we want to see justice in our nation, if, if we want to see wholeness and flourishing for everyone, if we want to find meaning and purpose in our life and have that just be the norm for our friends and family and neighbors. With, we want everyone to have like a safe place to, to live in friendships and, and relationships that are deep and meaningful. If we want everyone to find good work to do in their life and then enough food and health care and safety and security to, to flourish. If we want those kinds of things instead of this list of things, how do we do it? Where do we, where do we start? How do we... I mean, it seems like a big task, reorder the world in such a way that reflects the holiness of God, the set apartness of God. It's like, well, that's big, especially when it seems like our problems are insurmountable. The answer Leviticus gives is start with the small things, with the little things. Small acts of liberation and bondage. Small things that subvert, undermine, change the system. On behalf of the least of these. So it's things like, you know, free ESL classes on Monday night for our neighbors. Just being a good neighbor, a good boss, a good coworker. Things like strengthening families, which begins here in just a few days. And the whole point of this program is to take people whose families are, are falling apart, and often in so much trouble, they're, they're sentenced to this in, by the court, by family court. And, and the church comes around them for like something, I think it's 12 weeks, it's a lot of weeks, and they, and they just try to speak a new way of ordering into being in, in their life so that they can find liberation and flourishing. Um, it's like helping to build new organizations like Good Faith Network. Its whole point is to work for justice, to change the system on behalf of the least of these. Like, and this just follows a logic. For, for everything to end up holy, Something has to be holy. And so we start by making something holy, which means set apart for the purpose of liberation. And wherever we go, whatever we do as a church, this is our role. This is what we do. And then finally, um, just on the personal level, and for this, we've been trying to do um, spiritual practices with, with every um, Leviticus sermon. So I'm going to invite us just to do uh, just a quick spiritual practice. Why don't you do this? Just um, where you're sitting, put both feet on the floor and close your eyes and kind of just find a place of reverence in you. And then what I want you to do is just lean forward a little bit and put both hands behind your back. 
and, and almost like take on the posture as if you had handcuffs on your hands. Just sit here for a moment. And while we take this posture, I want you to think about your own life and maybe where you might sense some kind of bondage, something that has your hands tied behind your back a bit. And because of that, you're not flourishing as you might. My guess is you know immediately what it is, but you might have to think, you know, a relationship, a conflict, an addiction, a loss, a fear, a loneliness, anxiety, a regret. And maybe you feel hopeless to change it, like you've tried and tried before and you keep failing, and it just feels like this is the way it's going to be always. You think about Leviticus and what do you do in these moments when, when we feel powerless to, to move life toward flourishing, the answer it gives is start with little things. And so I wonder if something might pop into your mind, just a little thing that you could do, some small thing in life that you could set apart as holy that might change you, that might somehow subvert that thing that has you in bondage. Maybe start just a little bit of time that would be sacred in your day or some space that you might make sacred, set apart, holy. Maybe you need to find a priest who can teach you how to reorganize whatever's killing you, a pastor, a teacher, a therapist, a coach, a doctor, or just a, a friend. I just wonder if something has popped into your mind, you know, that you could try to set apart as holy as sacred that might lead toward liberation. And just continue to keep your eyes closed as you do this, but I want you to just release your hands and then put them on your lap in front of you. And notice how this feels. Okay, so th that feeling of liberating your hands, that's what holiness feels like. It's, it's about being set free from what binds us. It's not some uber-religious, like, moral, doctrinal category. It's just your life being set free from what keeps you from flourishing. That's, that's holiness. My prayer for us is that we would find small ways to chase liberation, that we would learn to distinguish um, between the things that make for bondage and the things that make for liberation. And that we would find little ways, little practices to, to be set apart. Amen. I invite you to stand, please. And we're going to receive communion. The way we do communion at Redemption is um, we're just released row by row. And the ushers will release us. And 
as you come forward, you'll be offered a plate of bread and a cup. You just take a piece of the bread and dip it into the cup and then receive it. And as you do, they'll say to you, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can respond. Um, you can say amen or say I will remember or just however you feel comfortable responding. The reason that we do this is that on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread. And after supper, after he had blessed it, he broke it and, and passed it around to his followers. And he said, um, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then after supper, he did the same thing with this one cup. They, they passed around this common cup and all drank from it. And he said, this, this um, cup is a new covenant in my blood, like symbolically blood meant, meant life. So this is a new deal between you and God that's established in, in my life. And so symbolically he's saying, like, take my body, my blood, my life, take my life into your life and be made out of the stuff I'm made out of. Come to life, be liberated, right? And then go out into the world and extend that to everyone else. And he said, every time you gather, do this. And so that's why we do it. And that's also why we just put no limits on it. Anybody who is dying for liberation and is willing to call in the name of Jesus, um, you can come join us at the table. So let's, let's pray. If you would pray with me a blessing. Um, Lord, we do give thanks for this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. To the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come? from temptation
We have, today we have guest announcers. Christina, are you here? Yes, there she is. Hi, my name is Christina Hubbard, and um, I wanted to let all the women know that we are starting a women's Bible study on Mondays in October, starting October 3rd. Um, so it'll be four Mondays from 9.30 a.m. to 11 a.m., free childcare, free coffee, free tea, and muffins. Um, Elizabeth Diddle and I uh, thought this would be just a great way for other women to connect with one another. I don't know about you, but coming out of the pandemic, I've been longing to get deep with some new friends and um, just get to know some of the faces around here. Um, we'll be meeting in the atrium um, each week. You can also come early just for a few minutes if you want to socialize. And we will be going deep into women in the New Testament, which I don't know if you've ever taken a, a look at some of the women in the New Testament, but they're fascinating. And so um, we're going we're gonna to do that. So if you are interested in that, please see Elizabeth Diddle. She's at the very back with the blonde hair and the cute little handkerchief, and she's got a clipboard, and she can answer any questions for you as well. Thank you. And Erin, there you are. Thank you. Hey, what's up, everybody? Woo! You awake? Yeah. That's right. Be awake and be happy to be here today. This is exciting. You all have amazing people around you, and of course, you have to know, we're still thankful for Tom Cruise for doing so many amazing things for us. I thought we should celebrate that even more. Friday night, September 2nd, 7 p.m. Men in the room, we're out kicking off some men's group fun. All right, so the ladies are gonna learn and become better people and better human beings. <laughs> and and uh, we're, gonna, we're gonna watch movies together and be <laughs> like, so we're gonna grow, it's the time to hang out. Uh, a lot of you, raise your hand if you've ever come to this church. Good, okay, we got some people here. All right, so you probably don't know everybody here. You probably been coming here, you're like, you know what, I should really meet some people, or it's great, I see that person, and every time I see them, I go. You know what, now here's a chance for you to actually hang out and get to know each other. I know, it's weird, right? You can do it, though. Well, this is gonna be a great time for fun, and we're gonna watch a little Top Gun action. So everybody go, ooh, that's right. We're getting ready for the danger zone. So I will see you there September 2nd. Say, everybody say September 2nd. At what time? What, where are we going to be? Oh, good guess, because we didn't say that. Yeah, it's in, this, it's in this building, all right? It's in this building. So come here, and I will see you then. Thank you. Thank you, both of you. You're up, Tim. All right, I have, I have one more announcement to you. 
I was hoping to get done in Leviticus is to have um, a new friend of mine, Rabbi David Glickman, um, who is the, the rabbi, the head rabbi, I think that's what they call it, head rabbi at um, Beth Shalom, come and teach us a little bit about Leviticus. Um, I've gotten to know Rabbi David through Good Faith Network. He's become a good friend. I hung out with him for uh, a couple hours this week. He's hilarious. The way he talks about Christians is really um, enlightening, let's just say. <laughs> and no, it gets deeply good because he loves us, but he'll, he'll tell us the truth. But he has agreed to come on Tuesday night, this Tuesday, um, a couple days from now, at, do I have it right, 7 p.m., 7 p.m., um, to talk on Leviticus. So what we're going to do is he's going to hang out and kind of teach, do some discussion for an hour, and then we'll just do Q&A for the last 30 minutes. So I'm really hoping we can have a good showing for Rabbi David um, for taking his time out um, to, to teach us and to sponsor a conversation and kind of come at this text from the Jewish perspective. It's going to be really good for us. So if you can make it um, Tuesday night at 7 p.m., uh, please do. And I think that's everything except our benediction. Do I have that right? And for our benediction, I'm going to invite Gabriel Bustamante and Joel Pittenger and Anna Shoup to come up here, please. Wahoo. That right there is the walk of satisfaction of having done an amazing job as our summer interns this year. You know, this, um, Cole McGee, who is our, our youth pastor, is on sabbatical right now. And that left a big void um, that needed to be filled for these months. And so these three interns who, who came up, all of them, through our youth group, or part of our youth group um, in school and, and pursuing those things now, decided to, to come in and join us for the summer to pick up the slack and even to, to move things forward. And um, we've learned a lot about these guys over the course of the summer. They are hilarious. They are hard workers. I mean, hard workers. They are diligent um, workers. You tell them to do something once, and they get it done, and it doesn't come back to you. And if, um, even if they don't know how to, to do it, they'll be like, I got this. And then they go look at YouTube videos and figure out how, how to do it. Um, they are smart and confident, they are diligent, they are kind, and they are hilarious. And I don't know what we're going to do without you guys in our staff meetings for the rest <laughs> of, of the year, because it's been so dang fun to have you. Um, thank you all so much for working so hard, for um, taking it seriously, especially the time you spent on Wednesdays with our kids, man, and the time with the neighborhood kids and soccer camp just the hours relating, being good, being kind to our kids. We're so grateful to have you building into them. It's made a real difference. So can we, can we say thank you to them? It's, um, you need to go, you need to go to school, you need to go to work, otherwise we'd be begging you to stay, it's just been that good. But instead of that, um, if we could, would you stand and, and let's just say a blessing, anybody from staff, if you want to come up and, and just put a hand on their shoulder and, and we'll, we'll pray for them, pray a blessing over all of them. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for these friends and for all of the great work they've done 
this summer for us. But even more than that, we're just so grateful for their faithfulness to you, for their desire to serve the church, for their love of you, our God, um, their love of the story that we're in. It's a story of redemption and of liberation. And we just see the way they're living their lives in faithfulness, the way they've chosen to pursue virtue and goodness. And we just say amen to that. We say well done to that. We see it in them. We're grateful for it in them. And so we ask you, God, to bless them on this day. We ask that as they head out to do work in school, that you would go with them, that everything they put their hand to would flourish, that um, they would find your favor and success in their endeavors. And when they fail and fall flat, that you would be near to them and they would know that even, even the suffering serves a purpose and that they would always look to you. Um, we pray that the body of Christ would always surround them and that they would um, never know a single moment they don't feel part of us and a part of your people. And so we bless them on this day and ask you to bless them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, you guys, go in peace, everyone.